Israel is a land of diverse cultures, religions, foods, music and people. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he explores the devout and divine, the off the wall and outrageous and everything in between. Right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program. Good to be with you on this 1st of July, Monday morning. It's a smidgen nippy outside. It was a bit cold over the weekend, but not quite as bad as I thought it was going to be, I do have to say. So that is uh, quite positive, uh, I think. So, yeah, and uh, if you are feeling a bit nippy, we've got a great show which should warm you up. I hope, <laughs> on, on on the show today. So uh, what is coming up? So we're going to be finding out a little bit later on. Uh, we've got a guest, a very good guest. I'm quite excited. He is from TreeWorks. Uh, TreeWorks is a tree consultancy. And we're going to be finding out a little bit about these borer beetles. You know, I've been seeing uh, in the news uh, a, a lot about these beetles and they're eating all our trees and what's going on. So we thought we'd bring in a real expert uh, to see and understand what is going on with these with these beetles, with these uh, things that are eating all of our trees in Joburg. Because, you know, Joburg is a big tree place. Everyone loves their trees. Um, and <laughs> a lot of people who I didn't think would be so, so taken with this issue have been. So uh, let's find out wh- what's going on and what can be done about it because it's a, a scary issue, man. That's, uh, can't, can't have that. Uh, later on, we're also going to be looking at ornithology. Ornithology and interfaith uh, and what one can do for one another. So if you're not sure, ornithology is the study of birds. And interfaith, of course, is how do we get people from different religions to uh, get along with one another? And what do they have to do with one another? Well, you'll have to find out. But uh, we do have ornithology and interfaith. And just coming up after the break, I'm going to be talking about this Limud saga. If you were reading the Jewish Report this weekend, uh, you would have seen something about that. And uh, I'm going to be giving what I hope is a bit of a fresher take on the issues. So that is all coming up. Of course, you can always be part of the show. You can WhatsApp us, 061-895-1019. That's WhatsApp, SMS us, 34519. Tweet us at Chai or uh, email us, info at uh, or on air, rather, at chaifm.com, And we will happily take your views. That's what's coming up in the show for today. We'll take a short break and we come back. We're giving my take on the Limit Saga. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. 101.9 Chaifem, I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Now, uh, you may have seen over the weekend uh, uh, about this uh, Limud issue uh, of uh, Orthodox rabbis not uh, participating uh, in Limud. And uh, I know that uh, Howard Feldman has spoken about this. Uh, he interviewed uh, Chief Rabbi last week. Uh, and I just thought I wanted to give my take on this particular issue because a lot of what's been going on with uh, with this issue, we were talking a lot about politics, a lot about religion, a lot about community. And I just thought I wanted to bring a different take. So I do hope that you'll appreciate it. Uh, I should say that I have been going to Limud for 10 years. Uh, I also go to Sinai and Daba. I, I don't mind going to both. Uh, it's not really a uh, big issue for me. Um, but nonetheless, I did think that the debate itself was missing uh, something. So this is, is, is this is my view. What I wanted to bring to you was why I think that Limud is important for our community. And, uh, why it's important, I think, is not, uh, is not anything to do with necessarily what people learn or what they don't learn, although that's part of it. And certainly, uh, you know, what I want to tell you is, is a story about 
sort of my one of my favorite Limud talks that I ever heard. But it wasn't a talk about uh, Torah, although I have been to some excellent talks about Torah. It wasn't a talk about history, although I've had some great history lessons at uh, Limud. It wasn't a great debate about Israel, although they have that as well. Uh, rather, it's a talk about, or, or by rather, a member of our community, a member of our community's own personal story. And uh, it was a story about how he escaped Soviet Russia and, and came to South Africa. And I'm not going to mention his name just in case I make a mistake. And uh, if, if you do know him and I have made a mistake, I do apologize. It was also my experience. So, uh, But this was, this was the talk. The talk that I went to was about this community member who escaped from, from Russia. And it's interesting because, you know, we have uh, some Holocaust survivors in our community. Obviously, we have people who survived the, the War of Independence. Uh, but we don't have a lot of, of Russian uh, people who escape from Russia, unlike, say, America or Australia or those sorts of, of communities. And for that reason, this man was not able to uh, give his story over anywhere because where would he talk? Would he talk at the Holocaust Center? No, because not a not a Holocaust issue. He wouldn't talk at the Board of Deputies. It wasn't a strictly Jewish issue, not for the Zionist Federation because it wasn't an Israel issue. And, and so uh, as far as I understand, this man had never spoken publicly in our community uh, and uh, by the time that he arrived at Limud to tell his story, I mean, he he was much older. He was I mean, at least in his 80s, maybe his 90s. And so he had never actually spoken uh, before. And so he he came and uh, he came to a Limud session and it was really packed. There was 100, 120 people plus people were standing. Uh, there was uh, not enough room for everyone. Uh, and he sat with a, a small, a small a young historian. Uh, in our community who was interested in his story uh, so they wouldn't have to just give a lecture. It was uh, a, a discussion. And he proceeded to give the story of his escape from from Russia and the, the cost that it took on his friends and his family and his life and what it meant to him to then come and live in South Africa. And uh, I think it, w- it was a very powerful story. And I don't think I've ever seen a crowd follow in a speaker quite so much. Uh, they were really, really engaged. They're connected to what he was saying. And, you know, this guy was having a discussion. This was no I have a dream or Barack Obama or anything like that. He was just giving his story in a very plain, simple manner. But people were on the edge of their seats. The crowd was completely not only following him, but almost willing him along to get the story out uh, and, and, and listening. I mean, people were crying uh, in the middle of, it, of his talk. He cried even. Uh, at at some point, and it was an, a tremendously powerful moment uh, of connection between himself and the people who were listening. And as soon as he finished, as soon as he was done talking uh, about his life and what he had gone through and what he had lost in order to escape from Russia, the whole crowd got up as one, the entire crowd, uh, and which gave him the longest applause that I think I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, it was incredible. It went on and on and on. And all this man could do was stand up and sort of like put his fist in the air and wave it slightly uh, and then sit down uh, after that uh, in appreciation for for the standing ovation that he had just received from his own community. And because of this particular limo talk, uh, it it just completely broke down the barrier between this story uh, and the community. And since then, this man has gone on to have a bit of a mini celebrity career, if you like, uh, in the community, uh, because he's now had all sorts of places where he could talk. He's gone to schools. He's spoken at community events. Uh, he's, he's gone down to Cape Town even uh, to talk at the, at the Holocaust Center. And I think it's amazing because now he has the opportunity 
to tell to tell his story. And uh, you know, our children have an amazing hero that they can now look up to. Uh, you know, one of the things that's been a part of our community history is that the, the Jews in 1994 who suddenly got all the kudos were all the communist Jews who were fighting apartheid. And yet communism was this terribly destructive force to Jewish life uh, in, 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 in the world. Uh, and so here was a genuine hero uh, of the Jewish uh, world in our midst that we had never um, we had never recognized before. And simply by doing his uh, talk at Limud, he was able uh, to get his story out. And as, as a result, the community was able to get an appreciation of his story and, and give the story the dignity uh, th- that it deserved. And, and that's tremendously powerful, and I don't know any other platform in the community where that could have happened. And that's why I think that Limud is such a powerful uh, force and a, such a powerful platform and such an important part of our community. And, and it's not just him. I've seen this countless times, you know, uh, the young woman who did a talk once on the Shidduch crisis. I think it was, uh, it was fantastic. I've seen people do painting with Jewish themes that, uh, they, they understood more uh, about themselves. Historians give over a story of our community that I've, uh, I've never heard of a rabbi teaching a part of Tanakh, which, uh, you know, normally wouldn't get taught. And it's really, really powerful when this kind of teaching happens. It gives dignity not just to the person who's doing the talk, but to our community, which makes it more whole. And that's why I find every single year the fact that we're having to have this debate on and off and on and off about who can be uh, present and who can't. I just think it's ridiculous uh, because when we have this debate, we're a small community. We don't have a lot of bandwidth for all the issues that we have to deal with. And so every single year for us to be having this debate, I think it degrades both our dignity and our uh, Jewish community. And and I think that this story really goes to show uh, why it's important that we don't uh, do this and why we should find a solution to this thing so that uh, we can get on with the business of, of running a community, talking to one another, and engaging. And I just think that this particular story, which was so powerful for me uh, and so powerful for the audience, is a great illustration of why we have to do what we're doing so uh yeah that's just my take very happy for you to give your own on this issue i know a lot of people are very very engaged in it you can send us a whatsapp 061-895-1019 you can sms us 34519 i'd be very happy to hear your view and take a break now we'll be back just after this this is the new blue review with benji shulman Welcome back to the program. I'm Benji Shulman on the New Blue Review 101.9 Chai FM. Now, a lot of you might have seen in uh, papers, in various online news outlets, etc., this issue of the Bora beetle, which has been uh, coming into South Africa, destroying trees, spreading all over the place, uh, and causing quite a lot of alarm uh, amongst general members of the population about what's going to happen to uh, our trees. Of course, Joburg is known as a tree city, and um, these Bora beetles seem to be some kind of a particular threat. So what we've done is we've brought an expert into studio, a guy who's worked for 20 years in the maintenance and support of trees, uh, he is Julian Ortlep, and he is from TreeWorks. Julian, welcome to Chai FM. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. 
So everyone has been talking about this Bora beetle infestation, plague, whatever you want to call it. Uh, perhaps you can start off by telling us uh, what is this beetle, where is it from? Give us some background. Okay, so it's a, it's a very tiny uh, wood-boring insect, about the size of a sesame seed. Uh, it's uh, said to originate from Southeast Asia, Vietnam. Uh, what it does, it bores into the tree, and it has the fungal spores on its body, which is its food, which it feeds off. And as it bores into the tree, they rub off into the tunnel that is bored, and those um, uh, tunnels then become uh, populated with the fungus. It interferes with the um, the vascular system in the tree and the transport of water and nutrients up into the tree, and the tree slowly dies. Okay, so it's not actually the beetle itself that's the problem. It's the fungus that's attached to the beetle. Well, yeah, you could put it that way. But obviously, if you didn't have the beetle, you wouldn't have the fungus. So it's a bit of both. So the beetle is, is sort of the vector. And how did we get this thing? I mean, how does it even get into the country? You know, there's all kinds of um, uh, theories as to how it got into the country. But the reality is this beetle, you only need one beetle to arrive in an area to start uh, populating it. And that's because she breeds with her sons and the sons will breed with the sisters. So it didn't necessarily have to come in a, in a piece of wood. It's, it's rumored to have arrived in in crates, um, it's very difficult to say, but it could have even come in a backpack from somebody arriving back or luggage back from a trip to Vietnam and it gets cleaned out and, and then one or two beetles come out. Mm. That's really how easy it is. And and how how many beetles per breeding cycle, I mean, if this thing is spread? Um, I, I think the, the guys from Pretoria University uh, said that in, in, in South Africa, the beetle has three breeding cycles a season. Okay. So that's quite a lot. We have a very long, warm period in our country, uh, in, well, in Joburg especially, so it gives them a lot of time uh, to proliferate. And are there a lot of them per – I mean, it's one of these things that makes like millions of, of oh, yeah. small you, beetles. You'll find in some of the reproductive host trees hundreds and thousands of beetles um, inside. It's, it's an incredible how many you actually find in some of the trees. And they then – and they, they fly to the next tree or do they walk? Or? Yeah, so the female, she's the one who flies. The male stays inside the tree and she'll fly. They say her, her, her flying distance is approximately 1.6 kilometers, which they call a mile in, in, in the U.S., um, to, uh, to, to, to a maximum flying distance. The male stays in the tree. Obviously, we have a lot, um, we cause I- issue by spreading firewood, taking it around to places where the beetle isn't, because that's all you need to do to spread it. You, you know, if the beetle can do 1.6 Ks in its lifetime, well, you can drive 1.6 Ks in, in a minute. Mm. So, you know, transported 20 Ks this way and 20 Ks that way, it's, it's one of the main modes of it spreading and and also um uh, prevailing winds will help it as well so how far have these things gotten in terms of the south african landscape like we know it was in johannesburg uh, has it gotten out of the city oh yeah it's in joburg uh, it, it was first confirmed in durban in the botanical gardens uh it's in the cape now western cape i was down there a few weekends ago look, look identifying trees um it's in mpumalanga in some of the uh pecanut orchards so it's spreading very quickly, and I've heard – I haven't – it hasn't been confirmed to me, but I have heard that it's in the Kruger Park. I, I, I haven't heard a confirmation, but I've heard a couple of rumors that it's in Kruger Park now. Now, it hasn't so far infected all trees everywhere. Uh, it, it does seem to have preference trees. Do, do we know anything about that? Yeah, so you get a reproductive host tree and you get a host tree. Obviously, reproductive host tree is the tree they breed in. Those are the trees of main concern because they are providing the habitat for this beetle to proliferate. 
Um, there's the host tree is a tree that they just go and they look and they see, but they don't reproduce. Nobody seems to know why. What's the difference between the two types of trees and why they choose to breed in one and not the other? So the main reproductive host trees in and around Johannesburg are the London Plain, English Oak Tree, Chinese Maple, Ace Nagundo. And then, of course, it has crossed over onto indigenous trees, uh, some of the acacias, um, uh, Karoo, Acacia Karoo, uh, Acacia um, Common Hookthorn, Paperbark, Erythrina. There is a very, very long list of trees. And I have a personal bit of a, a dispute with some of the people who are putting the lists out there because obviously you don't want to replant a reproductive host trees, and those are trees that, in my opinion, should be removed. Because there is no silver bullet, no control for this pest other than managing managing it. Um, so you can still plant a host tree. But the real problem are the reproductive host trees that I've listed. But there are more than what I've just listed because they have found more. So this it's it's actually a very, very wide spectrum of, of trees. It's not mm. uh it's it's both indigenous and alien, it's uh big and small. It doesn't seem to have a particular preference. It's, no, it's, it's quite correct. Often a borer will be specific to a type of tree. Here it's arrived here. We've provided this buffet for it and it's going crazy. Sure, that is uh, <laughs> quite disturbing. We're speaking uh, to tree expert today on the borer beetle, Julian Ortlip, if you've uh, just tuned in. Uh, and you can SMS us on 34519 if you have any questions about about the trees. So, I mean... Some of the heritage trees that we have in, like, you know, the Western Cape, even in Johannesburg, are those potentially under threat? Oh, yeah, very much so, particularly in the Western Cape, the old English oak trees that line the streets there. I mean, the English oak being a reproductive host tree is a primary uh, target. And as we know, in George, uh, the they've lost, oh, I think might even be heading up to 100 huge, massive old English oak trees already to this problem. Now... Whenever you have a discussion like this about some sort of invas- invasive alien, uh, you, you sort of did mention controls uh, a little bit before. Uh, and a lot of people immediately jump up and down and say, well, you know, can't we spray and can't, isn't there something that eats this thing and isn't, uh, you know, isn't there some sort of pre-defense? So you're saying there's absolutely nothing that we currently have in our arsenal that can, can stop this beetle. There are a few products out there. One looks rather promising, which is an organic um, fungicide uh, where they use the lipids to, de- to, to deliver the, 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 the insecticide into the tree as well. Because remember, you want to hit it twofold. You want to try and kill the fungus and the beetle. But there's nothing that can be proven. I mean, there, there are things out there that have been touted, touted as the solution and the effective or the cure and the effective solution. Now that's a very you've got to be very careful when when people come and tell you these things because there is no cure and there is no effective solution because if I want effective solutions, my tree gets saved that's why I'm treating a tree and there's nothing that we know as yet that will come and save your tree and kill all the beetles and bearing in mind that if you were to hypothetically sanitize a tree that is a reproductive host tree and kill all the beetles that it's going to become a target again mm. so treatment would then be forever right until something happens. And and I see that this is a problem actually worldwide. This beetle has been found in California, in Israel, yeah. uh, in all, all sorts of other places. Mm. So, you know, uh, in America, obviously the tree industry is, is, is massive. Mm. So R&D into things like this, they would throw a lot of loot at it and they would do a lot of investigation, which they have done. 
um, and even them, and in Israel, you know, all these countries, including ours, we have a lot of clever people, and nobody's managed to, to, to come up with a solution. The problem is that this beetle bores so deep into the tree. Mm-hmm. If it was only in the outer bark where the, where the, where the, where the um, vascular bundles are, it would be quite easy to treat because you could put your insecticide directly into the tree and, and it would hopefully kill it. But because it goes in excess of 10 centimeters into some of the trees, the bigger trees, you can't get in there. To find it, and that's where they're breeding. Mm. So it's it's interesting. It's almost like, uh, in some respects, we have to go back and think about how diseases were in South Africa in the early 1900s when you had the rinderpest or uh, you know some of the other foot and mouth type things where there's no actual cure, mm. but you actually have to focus on managing the disease and 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 stopping its spread. It's from a, a more of a prevention management paradigm as opposed to a, a cure paradigm. Mm. Exactly. So, I mean, you mentioned foot and mouth. We all saw, what was it, 20 years ago, whatever, in the UK, when they were just burning all the all the cattle. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, that that was part of their management process. And then also quarantine and all these things. So that, a similar sort of approach should have been taken here. Yeah? Unfortunately, our local authorities in Johannesburg have done um, pretty much nothing about it and seem to have just sort of um, put their hands up in defeat and said there's nothing that can be done. Um, which is a little bit disappointing because uh, there is stuff that can be done even if it's not a cure, so to say. There are management protocols that you can put in place, which haven't, which hasn't happened. So, so let's talk about that. I think mm. you know we need to maybe get the discussion around management going. Clearly, what are the stakeholders and who has to be involved uh, in order to make this thing work? Well, obviously. Um, in the city of Joburg, it would be the city of Joburg and the um, city parks department. Um, on a national level, you get to national government, and there are STIACO meetings happening, and I think they've had three or four of them. But again, it's a talk, and, and nothing seems to happen. Um, it, the, the, the wheels are turning too slowly, and I'm in Johannesburg, so you know I can I can speak from a Johannesburg perspective. Is that unfortunately, city parks have been very uh, lax and um, um, non-responsive to this problem, and it seems that they have pretty much just accepted defeat and have now decided that they're just going to go around and cut down dead trees. That's basically their plan of action for the, with the borer. So, so on the ground, I mean, let's assume you could wave a magic wand, right, and have all the resources and, and all the talks done, and, and you could put together a task team of anti-borer beetles. What is it that you need to have in order to, to fight this thing? Is it people walking the streets, identifying things? Do we have to cut down trees, burn trees? What is the, the process you think that looks like management for this? So let's go back to the beginning. What we, what we asked from city parks was to have a designated uh, dumping site, with equipment to chip the the wood up so that we could uh, they say that 90% of the beetle dies during the chipping process and the rest you would solarize which is basically windrows covered with plastic so in the beginning it would have been to identify the trees we knew where the epicenter was and to work from the outside in if I was the city arborist that's what I would have done and worked from the outside in and sanitize that area I believe that would have made a big difference obviously speculation is exactly that but if we look at how they're dealing with it in the countries that have a couple of years ahead of us with this problem that's how they've done it and they have seen a decline in the population of the beetle, obviously, because they have affected the, 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 the breeding territory. So that's what I would have done. Um, right now, because we are now basically in the third year of this, of this pest, we had this meeting with city parks about a year and a half ago, April last year. Nothing was delivered um, since that meeting. And um, so the beetle has just, it's just gone crazy. 
because there is no official dumping site. People are taking wood all over the place. There are people who still don't know about the beetle because there's been no media campaign other than private companies like myself on social media and talks like this. Um, educating people and there are, you know, the guys on the side of the road who are, are cutting down trees and they're waiting for you to cut down the tree. They don't know about the border. They got cut down the tree and that wood goes this direction and that direction and, and, and spreads it. So there's absolutely no plan. Right. So we need a, so we need a plan and we need it countrywide. Yeah. It's a national issue now and, uh, it, it, it but there's no other way to describe this as a nat- nat- national catastrophe, environmental catastrophe. If you look into the recent reports of how, how, how poor our air quality is here, and we are going to be losing hundreds and thousands of trees, you know, put the two together, and that in itself is a problem for us, illness, habitat for birds, property values, hot weather, rainfall, it's all going to be affected. Exactly how many trees are we looking at in terms of an impact here, do you think? It's very difficult to, to put a, a figure on that. There are all kinds of percentages that have been um, put out there. But, I mean, if you look at Johannesburg, the oldest suburbs are the suburbs that are lined with the plane trees, the English oak trees. And they are the suburbs that provide the big green canopy we have. Mm. Now, if you were to think that Parktown North, Parkhurst, Dunkeld, Houghton, just those few suburbs um, would lose all their plane trees – because predominantly those are the street trees. Um, yeah, you're looking at, let's say Jobo's got 6 million trees, and we lose 10% of that. That's very conservative. Mm-hmm. They, I, I would say it's probably up to 30. Sure. You know, we're looking at hundreds of thousands of trees. And I remember a few years ago, it was a black wattle tree uh, in Auckland Park. There was a lot of rain, and the, the wattles don't have a great root system, so it fell over and it killed someone in a car. Mm. Now, those plane trees are big. I mean, mm. is there a risk of trees falling over on people? Is it that kind of risk, or do they just kind of die on the trunk, so to speak? Yeah, so they die slowly. Obviously, the longer it's left there in its in its uh, dead state, it's, it's going to become a bigger problem. But the borer doesn't cause a, won't cause the tree just to fall over. That's generally a, something below ground issue below ground where they do not go. Okay, okay, mm. and. When we're having a look at at the trees, so uh, a lot of people, because it bores so deep, they don't know what to look for. Uh, so how how will you know if your tree is infected or if it's a host tree? Because at least maybe someone listening to the show could uh, at least identify if their tree is sick or ill or, or whatever. So you're looking for some frass, which is very, very fine sawdust sitting in the crevices. If you've got a very rough bark tree, you'll notice it. Uh, around a lot of the holes, there is a wet patch or an exudate, a gum that sits there. Um, there also, you will find um, the hole you've got to look really carefully for. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny little hole, about a millimeter, maybe slightly less. Um, and you look for that in the crevice of the bark because the beetle doesn't want to bore from the thick through the thick bark. It's going to go in between where the bark is the thinnest and it's going to start boring there. And obviously, if you look up into your crown of your tree, don't only look on the main stem in front of you. Look up into the tree and um, look at the branches. And you see dieback. It's a bit difficult now because the season we're in. But uh, look for dieback in the crown. Um, but what, what is dieback? So dead sections, okay. dead branches in, in the tree that look unusual. But generally, it's frass, exudate, which is a, a gum and a, and a wet patch. And even they call it a, a, a bar. A, a frass noodle sticks out like a little bit of a noodle out of the hole that they've uh, bought in the tree. We're talking today to Julian Ortlep from Tree Works. We'll be back just after the break. 
This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. New Blue Review back on 101.9 I've been talking about trees and uh, this Bora beetle phenomenon uh, which is currently affecting uh, Johannesburg and the entire country uh, here with Julian Ortlip. Now, Julian, so we, we, we've seen what's going on. Uh, you've kind of painted this quite bleak picture about uh, the the trees and what might happen to them. Uh, what now? What do we do, ordinary people listening to a show like this, what can be done? Right, so if you've got a tree on your property that is a reproductive host tree, my personal recommendation is to have it assessed. If you want to try and treat it, you're welcome to try and treat it. Like I said, there's no guarantee. We have had some trees that we've caught it, well, trees, uh, susceptible trees that we started treating prior to infestation with a beetle, and they still seem to be clear. So it's very important to have your, your tree assessed um, and make sure that you're getting a proper recommendation and, and, and not some unrealistic um, uh, um, advice. Uh, obviously, we we are going to be removing a lot of trees, so we have to continue planting. We can't now, a lot of people are saying, oh, crikey, well, I can't plant now. It's going to get affected by the borer. The reality is you're not going to be planting a reproductive host tree, but you can plant, in my opinion, a host tree, which is, like I said earlier, a tree that they do not breed in. We must carry on planting. So some Josh has uh, SMS into the studio. Thank you, Josh. Uh, is saying, can your guests say if jacarandas and fruit, fruit trees are vulnerable to the borer? Okay, so on the list, jacaranda is one of the trees on the list. Personally, I haven't seen it on a jacaranda yet, and I've looked at many, many jacarandas. So although it's on the list, somebody saw it somewhere. I think the guys at the university saw it somewhere. I cannot say jacaranda tree is a problem yet. Um, we just hope the beetle doesn't change its diet and start uh, feeding or, or boring into the tr- these the jacaranda trees and etc. Um, fruit trees, yeah, problem. We're finding it in a lot of uh, fruit trees and gardens. Uh, it's the, the the way to fi- look for it on a fruit tree is it's a lot of gum that comes out of the tree where where it's made its uh, where it's bored into the tree, and obviously that is a big problem from an economical point of view because if it gets into our agricultural industry, it's going to be a huge problem. So yes, fruit tree uh, and our map currently I'd say no pinoak, but that doesn't mean keep be aware. Always look at your if you have a pinoak, keep an eye on it for the what we discussed earlier as to the signs and symptoms. And if you happen to have a breeding tree, surely the the correct thing to do is just to to burn it and cut it down so that it can actually not be a host to this thing anymore. Well, yeah, getting rid of the uh, the environment that it breeds in or its habitat is very important. It's it's what they've done in overseas. Um, and um, if if your tree is heavily infested, burning is a way. Or, or they did it. Although they did a, a test at the Pretoria University where they put a piece of wood with borer into, I think they called it a mushroom heater, some sort of, sort of thing that heated up slowly, and the beetles crawled out and wanted to disappear. Hmm. Still, the 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 most effective way, I believe, is to chip it and okay. then solarize it. So that's uh, so that's a decision that a tree owner might have to make if if they find that their tree is uh, infected. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. And and regrowth, obviously, we need to keep then replant, redoubling our efforts to replant. Absolutely, we need to plant, plant, plant. We should f- be planting wherever we can plant a tree now. Now, you guys, obviously, you're a private company. You work on tree health, but is there a, a other organisations that are working on this issue? There are lots. Uh, we work very closely with the Johannesburg Urban Forest Alliance, which is uh, acronym JUFA. You can find them on Facebook and Twitter, and they're very heavily involved um, with the borer. Obviously, their um, role extend beyond the borer to trying to um, 
prevent the deforestation of our city with the densification. That's a big part of their, their, their um, uh, mandate. Um, but obviously also very heavily involved in the Bora issue um, and, and giving a lot of talks and advice and, and, uh, to people, and they've got a lot of reference to it on their website. So if you want to check out some information and you need more information, you can go there and, and have a look. Yeah, I mean, I think we've also got some, but they've got a really, you know, I, I send people there rather than duplicating stuff on my website. I send people to Jupiter to have a look at, uh, at what they've got available. So if people do want more information and they are concerned about this particular issue, mm-hmm. Jufer is one place. Can they also phone you guys? You do tree assessments? Yeah, yeah no, we can. We, go, we do a, a, an assessment. There is a small fee for an, uh, of 250 rand for, for an assessment, and we'll give you a report on the tree. And, um, and then, you know, the homeowner can decide on what they, what they want to do. Okay, so how can they be in touch with you then? Uh, they can call us on our office at 011... Eight eight four eight zero eight eight. They can go to our website www.treeworks t r e e w o r k s dot za and uh, email us as, via that. Well, there we go. Maybe uh, a bit of an outing for the family this weekend. Go into the garden, check out the tree, and see if uh, you can maybe detect this borer beetle. Uh, if you have one of those trees, check out and see maybe is your tree on the list because uh, it's uh, it's almost an epidemic by the sounds of it. Mm, it is, and something we're going to have to be facing. Julian, thank you so much for coming into the program, and good luck with uh, fighting this thing. Thanks, thanks for having me. And Julian Ortlip there. He is from TreeWorks. We're going to take a break. We'll be back just after this. This is the new Blue Review with Benji Shulman. Namaste there from Static and Ben Al Tavori. And uh, this is the new Blue Review on 101.9 with me, Benji Shulman. Now, I did promise that we would talk today about ornithology and interfaith. Two topics I'm sure you never thought would go together. Ornithology, of course, being the study of birds and interfaith being uh, the practice of getting religions together to sort out their issues. So what is the connection? Well, an Israeli ornithologist by the name of Yossi Lechem, Lechem recently made a visit to the Vatican along with his Jordanian and Palestinian counterparts because he has been promoting a new program, not a new program actually, a quite old program for about the last 16 years, uh, with barn owls. And uh, it's something that they've done in South Africa as well, but barn owls are basically an effective way to keep rodents and rats and mice and all sorts of things out of the fields of kibbutzim and uh, different farmlands in in the Holy Land. And so by working together with his different ornithological counterparts in the rest of the Middle East, they have been able uh, to get different barn owls connected uh, around and uh, basically reduce the amount of pesticides affecting people all over all over the place by using the barn owls. And it's been quite an effective program in the Middle East. And uh, the Vatican has become interested in this. And uh, they've even produced a book called Boomer the Barn Owl, uh, which is a Hebrew-English story about the importance of barn owls in the environment. Now, Yossi Lechem is a very famous ornithologist and has been working on this issue for many, many years. But in addition to his work on barn owls, he now has a new and interesting uh, idea for the Vatican, which he uh, pitched to the Pope. And that is he wants a worldwide conference on the issues of swift conservation. Now, if you know swifts, uh, swifts is something in South Africa we call swallows. Uh, of course, swallows 
uh, you will know they, they live up in the air and you've seen them. They sort of fly all over the place. They don't land, interestingly. The swallows, they live completely in the air. They eat, they drink, they mate, uh, they never sleep. They sleep in the air. Uh, so this is what they have. And they actually live a lot in time in South Africa. And then they fly up to the Middle East uh, on their uh, summer journey. And when they need to nest, they actually nest in buildings that have crevices, i.e. old churches, shuls, temples, and mosques. And so if you go to the Western Wall, for example, you'll actually see these swifts flying around uh, the Western Wall. And it's a, a beautiful sight, actually. I've just seen them recently. But because uh, new buildings are going up and they don't have uh, these crevices, the swifts are losing habitat. And so they're losing the amount of swifts uh, and swallows that they have in the Holy Land. And so Yossi Lechem is actually getting together a swift preservation uh, conference for interfaith. And he wants to get the owners of churches and shuls and mosques and temples all together because they all have swifts. And he wants to get them together to talk about swift conservation and swallow conservation uh, because it's vitally important to the ecosystem of the Middle East. And through this thing, he's trying to get uh, people talking to one another. And perhaps it might be that the humble swift, uh, which flies all over the place from South Africa to Israel, and might be one way that Israelis, Palestinians, Muslims and Jews and Christians and Baha'i and Caesareans and Druze and all sorts of other people can maybe get together and come across all their differences so that they can help save a great bird that belongs to the earth and to God and to all of us. And that is all the time we have on the show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Craig and Mandy and Vusi, all who help us do the amazing work on this radio show. And thank you to you for listening. And we'll see you next week on the new Blue Review.